When you do an activity that you love, like running, like bike racing, like enjoying the great outdoors, you want to do it for your entire life. Inside Tracker can help. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, your lifestyle, and your nutrition habits, and then tells you how to live, look, and age and perform better. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging genetics and biometrics using their patented algorithm. Inside Tracker analyzes your body's data to provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you and to offer science-backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Then Inside Tracker tracks your progress every day and helps you reach your performance goals as well as helping you live a longer, healthier life. Guess what? Listeners of the Velo News podcast, we have a great deal for you on Inside Tracker. You can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store by going to insidetracker.com forward slash Velo News. That's right, insidetracker.com forward slash Velo News. You will get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Thanks so much to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Tuesday here at the home away from home away from home away from home offices uh, at a nondescript location uh, in North San Diego County. Hey, before we continue with the podcast, please indulge me. Uh, inhale. Exhale. Uh, inhale. Now exhale all the stress from the Tour de France, from the last three weeks of racing, out of your body and your soul. Ah, do you feel better? Oh, I feel better. Folks, that's right. The Tour de France is over. The last three weeks of podcasts and reporting and stories and watching and agonizing and sitting on pins and needles following the race has now come and gone. And we can get on with the rest of our lives. We saw Tade Pogacar stomp everyone into paste. We saw Mark Cavendish win a green jersey in Tidy Mercs. And we saw Wout Van Aert win climbing stages, sprint stages, time trials. And probably, was there a cyclocross race there this year? If so, he would have won it. If there was like a strider race, I think Wout would have won that too. Really great race. Uh, thanks to the riders. Thanks to you all for reading along on VeloNews.com and following us at the podcast. We love the Tour de France. It's such a special time of year. But let me tell you, oh boy, is it a lot of work. And uh, after the tour, all of us here in the VeloNews universe feel like we need, you know, like a massage or 25 yoga classes or, you know, uh, spending a month in a, in a full body Norma tech to like uh, get back to normal. Um, and with that in mind, I have a bit of a different podcast for you all today. You know, I was thinking of doing a podcast where we're breaking down every inch of those last three stages, you know, getting into Pocacar's victory. What does this mean? Oh my gosh. But you know what? We're not going to do that. I'm, I'm here in uh, San Diego for the Belgian Waffle Ride, which was on Sunday, which was such a cool event. And, you know, watched Pete Stetna and Katerina Nash win, watched 4,000 people have a great time on a cool course, uh, had read about this event, but never seen it up close and definitely understand why it's one of the most popular, um, you know, quote unquote gravel. This one's more of mixed surface events out there, but really cool, innovative event. And, um, you know, we're going to be having a lot more content from Belgian Welfare Ride on VeloNews.com this week. But um, 
I was really psyched. I was able to sit down with a guy who I feel like I've been circling around him for a while for an interview or a hang or a catch up or whatever. It's Payson McElvin. Payson is, you know, endurance mountain biker by definition, but he's also a very, you know, very well-rounded cyclist, races gravel, does all sorts of stuff. And he's a media platform. Some of you may listen to his podcast, The Adventure Stash, which I listen to and I love. And what we have today is a bit of a joint production, Velonews podcast, Adventure Stash podcast. And it's myself and Payson. We linked up at Belgian Waffle Ride recorded a podcast talking all about stuff like what does it mean to really be a professional American cyclist in 2021 racing Instagram brands uh, promotions being innovative with media that type of stuff uh, we talked a lot about cycling media and the state of cycling media and uh, just a bunch of different topics and I really really enjoyed it again I, I feel like I've been circling pacing for a while I'm always interested in what he has to say and his take on what's going on in U.S. cycling so um, we're going to save the post Tour de France wrap up for maybe another podcast we're going to talk all about the Olympics here on the podcast coming up because that is starting and we're going to have takes and analysis and interviews and all sorts of fun stuff but today it's me and Payson talking about the state of U.S. bike racing. And uh, I really, really hope you enjoy it. So stay tuned to VeloNews.com for all the cool racing stuff from the Olympics, post-tour, everything like that. But uh, without further ado, here's myself and Payson McGelvin. Okay, we are back on the podcast. I feel like We've been circling this, even though we haven't. We've, I feel like we've been circling each other. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, whenever there's an interview with you, Payson, I read it because I like your perspectives. Spencer Paulison, our old uh, mountain bike editor, was a big fan of yours. And he would come to me and say, yeah, I, I you know, met up with Payson. And he was talking about this, that, and the other. And I was like, this guy has a pretty informed perspective on bike racing. And this, this guy's a thinker. I need to talk with him a bit more often. And I feel like in the last few years, we've been able to do that around gravel, around the tragic passing of Ben Sontag um, and sort of this, this big overarching topic, which I want to talk to you about today, which is trying to like figure out the direction of American professional cycling. Cause we're here. It's the day before BWR. By the time people listen to this, they will know the results of the race, whether you won or not. I don't give a crap about that in this conversation right now. What I'm trying to wrap my head around, Payson, is what does it mean to be a professional cyclist in America in 2021 and all the different components that go into that? And I'm sure you've spent so much time working on this and thinking about it and agonizing uh, about it too. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, first of all, it's a pleasure to finally do this. Um, I've been reading your stuff since I was a wee lad, I still have a Velo News copy, I think from uh, with Adam Craig and Georgia Gould on the cover. And I was so thrilled when that showed up in the mailbox because it was two mountain bikers on the cover of Velo News. But um, yeah, to answer your question, I think uh, part one is it totally depends on who you ask. Um, my perspective has certainly evolved over the years. I wouldn't say that I've spent uh, a huge amount of time agonizing over it until somewhat more recently, but I guess getting to this point has somewhat been, um, just, a, a an intuitive journey. Um, 
and also one that uh, took a, a decent amount of courage, and I'll get more into that later, just in terms of, you know, not following tradition, especially when cycling is such a traditional, tradition-bound sport. But, um, yeah, I mean, cycling, North Amer- or American professional bike racing um, has uh, taken some, some hard turns or veers in the road over the last few years, and ones that I think were pretty unexpected for a lot of people. And obviously there's a whole bunch of reasons that that probably happened. Um, but it is interesting, you know, when you, when you're inside it, um, so to speak, it's interesting to kind of look around and, and, you know, you'll take a glance at your peers and see, uh, how they got to where they are. Um, and I guess the, the overarching point I would make is there, there seems to be far less structure than ever before. Um, and I think that's both exciting and scary. It makes it so that you have a, a, um, a bit of a blank canvas if you want it. But that also means if you're not someone that enjoys that or doesn't have the personality to go out and, and create, um, that it can be a bit of a, a wasteland. Um, but it, it depends on you know, your, um, your perspective on what professional means. Um, I think you you could talk to some people in the current World Tour Peloton who probably look down a bit or don't take seriously some of what, you know, someone like My Shoes does or maybe a Colin Strickland or something like that, um, which which is fine. Um, I mean, that's basically the NBA or NFL of cycling, obviously. They have all their own issues that we could go into also. But then there's this, you know, other subset of, of people who um, just sort of uh, have carved out something individual for themselves a lot of times. Um, and it's proven quite fruitful. And so in, in my opinion, to define professional cycling, it's, you know, it's your full-time job. Yeah. And so depending on who you ask, there could be like a, a, a category, what's the, the term? There's um, Conti, Continental Road Pro, who doesn't make a cent racing their bike. But to some, they are more of a professional than say, Colin or myself. So it depends on who you ask, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends. It de- I, I can get more specific depending on what direction you want to go with that, but that's sort of like an overall, hopefully not too meandering <laughs> answer. No. And when I think about it too, it's, you know, are you able to pay your bills, pay a mortgage, pay a whatever from money that you get from cycling? So as I define it too, it's like, you know, I see I see Phil Guyman as a professional cyclist. For sure, cyclist. one of the most successful in the yep. country. And, and kudos yeah. to him for what he's built. I see the vegan cyclist as <laughs> yeah. a professional cyclist, you know? And, and I think that the blurred lines that you were talking about too is I see, you know, when I was at Unbound Gravel, I'm talking to some of these guys and gals and they're like, yeah, we're run, racing Unbound and then USC Cycling Road Nats and then Firecracker 50 and then BWR and then a road stage race. And it's like, wow, you know, I put that into context of my own career covering the sport. 10 years ago, no one would say that. Everyone would be like, well, I have my factory team and my factory team wants me to do X, Y, and Z. And now these people are getting paid money and they, you know, are blurring the lines between disciplines and all along the way, documenting it on social media or recording podcasts or making videos. And you throw this alchemy together of self-created media, racing platform, um, you know, influencing people, the, the mm-hmm. I word. Yep. <laughs> and you roll it up and all of a sudden you have a person who can go to multiple different brands 
and create a sponsorship portfolio that that pays their way. And you know what? Maybe one of those spots, maybe, you know, there's no like, whatever, $100,000 sponsorship in there from one brand, but there's a bunch of different sponsorships with incentives that when you add it all up, you're actually making way more than that domestic road pro or that in some cases the world tour pro which is it's crazy to think about but i mean that's the depending on who you are um that's the really crazy thing and and it was really interesting and and in some ways exciting to be on the inside of uh colin's agonizing decision about turning down the ef sponsorship and in hindsight you know obviously it was he's so thrilled that he did Uh, absolutely nothing against that program i'm a huge fan of ef uh pro cycling but um I mean, the truth of the matter is he was going to have to take an enormous pay cut. Um, And that was part of his decision. But he's also someone that really values his freedom, um, someone that really enjoys off bike stuff. And he wasn't going to have the freedom to continue to do that. But um, one thing I kind of wanted to mention is uh, one way I one thing I've been thinking about is I think uh, sometimes professional cyclists forget what their job actually is. And I'm talking big picture. So yes, take a Chris Froome at a very basic level. His job is to pedal as fast as he possibly can and win as many races as he can. But that's like uh, the the you know his his it's like an accountant at some job that makes you know let's let's take Apple. Overall, they're trying to sell phones. The person is uh, the accountant within that structure. Ultimately, their job is still to, to sell phones. Um, and so I feel like folks in, in my position or some of the other people I've mentioned, we've sort of had this opportunity to zoom out um, and almost meet that goal, um, the selling the iPhones um, from a few different angles rather than just being the accountant within that system. And so um, from, from my standpoint, that's something that I really, really enjoy. But like I said, not everyone enjoys that. So I think a lot of it depends on personality. Um, and then there are people who are, who are part of uh, that most traditional structure, the world tour structure, like a Lachlan or an Alex Howes, um, and they're having the freedom to do so. Even uh, like uh, Quinn and Keel, like they're, they have the opportunity to race Unbound also. And I think that's really cool how we're even seeing some blurring of the lines, um, even at the very top of the sport. In Eddie Anderson, for example, I raced him at Firecracker. He was super bummed that he couldn't partake in House in my three-part stage race that we're doing. Um, he skipped cross-country nationals, but he'll be here at Belgian Waffle Ride. And as far as I know, half of Eddie's races this year, even though he's he's on the same team as Matthew Vanderpool, um, is, is gravel stuff. I mean, even look at Vanderpool. He's doing mountain bike. Like, it's just all of a sudden, it's kind of like, what's going on here? I know. And I put that in the context of when I first started covering the sport, 04, 05, on the mountain bike side, where it was factory teams. And a factory team took you to the Norba, took you to the World Cup. And I, I actually think you in mountain biking had a head start on the roadies because the bottom falling out of mountain biking in like, oh, you know, 9, 2010, 2011, and the factory teams going away forced people like yourself to innovate and get creative and to like, to try and harness in on different skills. Cause that's the other thing I think about when I think about a pro cyclist in 2021 is like, you know, a pro road cyclist in 2008 is like train, rest, race, repeat. And a pro cyclist in America in 2021 is like manage a budget, create sponsorship decks, PowerPoint presentations that you are delivering to sponsors, um, manage your social media, create video, 
edit video, create a podcast, edit podcast, network. Like you have to have this diverse skill set that goes so far beyond just like knowing intervals or like knowing how to get your physiology to a point where you can be in the race to read it. Like there's all these different, and this, this gets back to your point, which is like, we're all in the in the business of selling phones, but like all of a sudden you're not just putting a phone on your Jersey and winning races. Like you literally have to have an understanding in how phones are sold. You have to understand marketing. Like, like, and that's just something that blows my mind when I think about this sport in this country and how it's evolved. Absolutely. And I'll, I have to admit that there was no grand scheme. And that's one thing I've noticed with a lot of the folks that are in similar positions to me is that there was a lot of circumstance that kind of led them to where they are. Like I said before, some of its personality, a lot of its timing. Um, and some of it was just serendipity. Um, for example, you know, Colin didn't really know what he wanted to do. He was sort of going down this domestic road trajectory and then all of a sudden Red Hook became huge and it just launched him um, into real notoriety. And then the gravel just became this natural transition for him, but he already had this really good you know, network with you know, Red Bull had just signed him, all that sort of thing. Um, and then for me personally, I uh, was just beating my head against the wall in regards to this cross country XEO stuff and you know doing U23 World Cups that sort of thing I made one elite world championships team um, and then I won marathon nationals and all of a sudden everyone was like now you are a long distance guy and I hadn't decided that but you know sponsors did the people that followed me at the time did and then the, <laughs> the same year um, I was uh, bronze at uh, cross country nationals um, had this awesome battle with Todd Wells on the last lap. Edinger and, and Howard were first and second. So a, a, a solid cross-country result. Um, and there was this moment where uh, I had interest from World Cup uh, factory teams as like a, you know, maybe this kid has something, let's try to develop him type thing. Um, and I don't know why to this day, but I decided to not go that route and continue down this longer distance route. And that was kind of my moment of serendipity because that long distance stuff is what's evolved into all this gravel stuff. And so who knows what would have happened if I'd said yes to going that more World Cup sort of oriented route. Um, I think there's a good chance I wouldn't even be in the sport potentially. I mean, who, or at least at a professional level. So I guess my point is there's, there's all of these weird like pressures and timing things that happen to, to put you in a position that someone like I am in right now. Um, and those thing, those are things that you don't necessarily get exposed to if you're in that traditional like pipeline to the world tour or something like that. So a question I had for you to piggyback off of that is as you started to build yourself as a quote unquote influencer, personal brand, you know, like, yes, you're a racer, but like what you've become is so much more than that. Were there other cyclists, other people in media, other people that you were looking at of saying, wow, you know, this person does a podcast and Instagram and like they're really innovative with this. Like who were you looking to for guidance as you started to like follow this, you know, personal sponsorship route that's, that's led you to be like a, a media platform? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, um, living in Durango, I've been fortunate enough to have some really incredible mentors. Um, and one of the biggest ones is actually Travis Brown. Um, and Travis said, as I was still kind of like trying to f let go of the past and kind of forge ahead with bravery into the future, tra I was sort of fretting over this whole, you know, you always hear you're only as good as your last result. And um, I think it was right after I'd won Marathon Nationals, Travis, we were in his garage or something, he said, you know what? I, I want you to remember that um, you to have a successful year and to remain relevant, you only have to have 
basically one good race a year. And this whole, you're only as good as your last result thing doesn't really hold true once you have a title. Um, and so these, these titleship things, whether it be national champion or um, even something like Phil Guyman has created where he's like the Strava cam guy, like that's, that's your PhD. Mm -hmm. And as long as you refresh it once or twice a year and sort of reinforce trust in everyone that follows you that your voice can still be trusted, the results almost come secondary. They're like the, they are the PhD, the MD after your name. And all of the other stuff, all of the day-to-day -day stuff, all of the storytelling, the hanging at the venue today for six hours and talking to people, like that's actually the bread and butter. Um, and I don't think, you know, some racers don't like to hear that, um, but that's been my experience. And um, as long, and I'm good with that as long as I still get to like really apply myself in the races, because that's still what I live for. Um, but all that other stuff, I think it, when, when ambassadors and racers are, are willing to really embrace that, it's, it's a huge amount of freedom and pressure off. Um, and it's interesting, at a, so we're at BWR, like you said, it's interesting to kind of look around the venue area and see which racers, which contenders are there at 2 p.m. in the afternoon in the heat taking photos with people, slapping high fives, doing interviews. Um, Cause there are some really, really good racers who are hiding in their hotel rooms and doing the more traditional thing, which is fine too. Um, but the opportunities end up being different. Right, and, and, <laughs> and, and, and there's, there's a trade off with that, right? Absolutely. Which you talked about, you know, you're out in the sun today, you're shaking hands and doing media and stuff like that. And maybe that impacts your race, maybe it doesn't. I think of another trade off, which is that, you know, under the old, team model you have someone booking your flights yeah. pumping up your tires you have a team mechanic when you go to a race you have someone assigned to you and now it's sort of like under this personal endorsement sponsorship model it's like you're managing your brand and if you go to a race and you think you need a mechanic there you're gonna pay them mm -hmm. and you know if you want to you're you know you're managing your own budget and setting a lot of these different things booking your own flights and stuff like that and so I remember I was talking to Stetna about this yesterday and he's just like, he's over the moon with the, the program he's created, but he's just like, you know, my wife is telling me you spend all day on the computer now. Yeah. And it's like, when you were a world tour pro, it's just train legs up. There you go. I'll have, you know, so-and-so at Trek Segafredo book my flights for me and sort of pamper me. So the old model of like the pampered pro cyclist, like there's a lot more that goes into it now. Yeah. Well, going back to the personality thing, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be on a team where, you know, I'm not the one booking flights and we do have full mecha full-time mechanics and all that sort of thing. But personality wise, that extra time that gets freed up from not having to manage that stuff anymore, I just have to fill. Like I have this, um, I don't know if it's a fear of failure thing or what, but I find a way to make myself busy and fill that extra time. So I end up being on the computer all, all day anyway also. Because the, the other thing is there's such a direct, um, you know, in, in racing, you can train your brains out um, and then get to the event and the race doesn't go your way for one way, for one reason or another. But with a lot of the, the content related stuff, you get out almost as much as you put in. Like there's almost a direct conversion a lot of the time. Like the more time you spend creating a silly reels video, um, you almost every time you're going to get payback, like positive payback. Um, and it's going to come back around in a, in a positive way. So it's, it's, it's hard to turn your back on sometimes. And that's actually become an interesting challenge for me in the last couple of years is um, getting really focused on something that's paying off professionally, 
really significantly and getting myself out the door to train. I mean, that, and that sounds completely ridiculous as, as someone who grew up just living for the process. But there are days where, you know, I'll be on the phone with the, the guys that I use for editing. So our, our Bentonville film, for example, that just came out, huge project, took so much time and effort. And there's still little loose ends. And I'm, you know, on the phone, look up, oh my God, it's 1230. I guess I'm going to eat lunch and then go on a ride. And so there's this constant balance of um, waiting all of the different tasks that you kind of alluded to earlier. And so even though I'm not booking flights, I find ways to, <laughs> to spend a lot of time communicating. And Now, here's a question for you. How yeah. do you deal with the the criticism of this new model, which is like, well, these guys aren't the fastest. These guys aren't the best. Payson's not the most talented. He, he'd get dusted in a World Cup race. He's not the world's best mountain biker, yet he has, you know, this ride and Red Bull and like all this media and this platform. This isn't fair. This isn't the old model where it's like best gets the most. Now it's this new model where like the best doesn't get the most. It's like you, you know, you're good with a computer, whatever. I mean, how have you dealt with you have to have heard some for sure. No, about all that. The, all the time. I mean, some of it direct, some of it through the grapevine, and I totally get it. But the fact of the matter is, the the people that get to decide are the ones that have the checkbook. And um, at times, do I wish that I could spend you know more time at a training camp in Malibu instead of you know. We filmed for three weeks for that Bentonville film earlier this year. Three weeks of filming. And anyone who's filmed knows that is hard, hard work. It is not training. Um, and would I have liked for that to have been 10 days? For sure. Um, but I feel like I have a pretty good grasp of um, what sponsors want um, and what consumers want. Uh, and so that's, I guess that's what I would reply um, in regards to the criticism is at the end of the day, racers don't get to decide what's relevant. Um, it's the industry and it's the people that are watching and cheering, cheering people on. I mean, just look at Lachlan's thing. Like I guarantee you there are people who snickered about that and it doesn't matter. I mean, he raised $500,000 for World Bicycle Relief. Um, had, I think, numerous articles in the New York Times. I know I saw at least two. Um, I think it's possible that Lachlan got more articles in mainstream American media than the actual Tour de France. I think that's possible. I, I don't know that for sure, but I think it was potentially pretty close. Um, and so point is, like, you can't deny that. Like, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Um, and I have all the respect in the world for folks that want to stay the course, stay the traditional, pure, 100% focused athlete trajectory. Um, but it isn't, it isn't for everybody. And at the end of the day, the racers aren't the one that, ones that get to decide. So, you know, this, this gilded area at the top of American, you know, gravel, endurance, whatever racing, you know, it's, you know, you and Colin and Pete and you've been, you know, Boswell, you've been able to car carve out these ways of life for you. I mean, do you think there's still room? Is there still room for riders to, to break into that world and like, yes, be a good racer, but also be a media personality, you know, working with brands. Do you see that, that you know, or do you f feel like it's a saturated market at this point? Yeah. Another great question. And that is something I, I think about a lot. Um, when you earlier you said you know things you agonize over thinking about that's probably the category of stuff that I kind of agonize thinking over because the truth is you know you uh, 
I'm, I'm in the prime, I'm 28 years old, so I'm in the prime of my career and I have plenty of time left, but you still, you know, want to look behind you as other folks are coming up and doing cool things because you want to stay relevant and you want to keep your career. Um, any athlete does that regardless of whether we're talking, you know, the more world tour stuff or what, or the stuff that, that I'm doing. Um, I, the, the short answer is I don't know because I think a lot about what's next. Um, what's after Instagram? Um, what's after YouTube? We've been asking what's after YouTube since like 2007 and it's still going <laughs> plenty strong, but I don't know. Um, because the airwaves are getting very saturated from a content standpoint. It seems like just about every single one of us, the folks you just mentioned, you know, has a camera crew following us around at all these big events now. And at a certain point, you know, that, that will get to a little bit of an eye roll point. Um, obviously we're not there yet because there are more and more people flocking to it every year. So I don't know, but I do think about it. Um, one thing we tried to do with this, uh, Benville project was find a way to make it not just a viewing experience, but make it an interactive experience, um, and have, have this ongoing, year-long contest where people are documenting their own experience and i think that that for a little while will probably be the future which is how do you actually mobilize people how do you create a takeaway um so that there's even that next level of interaction where it's not just engagement is not a comment left it's a they went to the place and they did something inspired by what you did, um, or maybe they joined a, a huge fundraising effort. Um, I think more and more socially minded efforts will become relevant. Like how do we, um, how do we make the viewers' lives better, and how can we come together to make you know everyone's experience better, rather than just a hey, watch this thing, and I hope it inspires you mm-hmm. type deal. No, it's interesting because the one thing that I keep coming back to with this is that like American cycling, it is not static and it's mm, change. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think about that as it relates to media and, and, and we can turn the tables as we say and start yeah. talking about media. But like, you know, when I was in grad school, uh, 11 years ago and everyone was looking at like the state of newspapers and the state of media, there was this attitude of like, well, things are changing now, but they're just changing into what they're going to be. And we'll, we'll figure out what they're going to be. And then we'll figure out what, how that's going to be. And then we'll keep going, you know, newspapers lasted for hundreds of years and now they're dying and something new is going to come from it. And, and that'll be it. And it's like, I started to think, you know, after years would go by and it was just more change and more change and more change. And I, I kind of think that just constant change and constant evolution is the new normal for, for media, for possibly American bike racing, which is that there, you know, the old walls got broken down and the old models kind of crashed and burned. And now what the new model is going to look like is going to change every three or four years. Mm. And in order to ride that wave, you're going to have to be really smart and really intuitive. And like you said, think not like what's going on in American bike racing, but what's going on with YouTube? What's going on with Instagram? How am I going to reach people? And so when people ask me about, well, what does it mean to be a pro cyclist? How do I be a pro cyclist anymore? I mean, that's probably one thing I'm going to tell them going forward. It's just like, you can't just like think about training and racing, what races you want to do, but like, you kind of have to think about how do you reach people? Come up with a new idea. And how is that going to change? Totally. I think creativity pays. And I mean, I see that in the media space too, but, um, the one thing that's really heartening is that, uh, 
we are not short on bike customers, yeah. especially in the last couple of years. And so if anything, I think there will continue to be more space. Um, and hopefully, you know, uh, whether it be the racers or, or folks in your position, creativity will continue to carry the day. Because I think at the end of the day, almost regardless of this is getting like high level philosophical, but people just want to be surprised and almost have that like light bulb moment. If, if they watch, you know, LeBron James, Tomahawk dunk from the free throw line, like that's what they're at the game for. If they see Colin Strickland win unbound solo from a hundred miles out, like that leaves a huge impression. Um, see Sepp Kuz hold off Valverde by 20 seconds on the last ascent. Like these are um, novel experiences. And so, you know, turning it to the, to the and, and novel viewing experiences. So turning it back to the media space, like I guess one thing I'm curious about is being in your position, having been doing this for so many years, how much time do y'all spend uh, thinking about innovative ways to cover stories? Is it just like treading water at times because the workload is so high? Or do you have time to think about fun, new, you know, innovative ideas? Both. Both. I mean, Velo News, covering the sport of competitive cycling, I mean, I tell people it's like, imagine if the NFL season went from middle of February until the end of October, and there were there were big games every day. And like, not just on Sunday, but like every day. And then some days with multiple games going on and, you know, games going on across the world. And like, you know, if you follow bike racing, you know that there's so much bike racing and so much important bike racing and men's and women's and gravel and mountain bike and road and Euro road and domestic road and all this stuff. And like, we try to do it all. So there are times where it has felt like treading water. But I think if you look at the last, I mean, I came back to Vela News in 2016 and even since then we've evolved the way we tell the stories of these races you know we invest so much more on helping people um analyze what happened try to understand what happened um velo news in 2004 when i started there as an intern was a magazine that came out every two weeks and it was i mean it was word factory we wrote so much it was news. and it was news and it was like it was, you know, a holdover from the way it had been even 10 years before that. But it was like delivering the basic information of what happened in these races. Because before social media, before Twitter, um, and before even like the internet was at the level it is now, like if you wanted to find out what happened in Liege, Bestone, Liege, you had to wait two weeks for your issue of Vela News to show up. And then you'd read your race report and be like, oh, wow, you know, like, oh, you know, Tony, Tony Rominger attacked on the Col de St. Nicola and... And he won the race. I know that information now. And you could go on the group ride and be like, hey, guys, Tony Rominger won Liege, but still in Liege. It happened 10 days ago. But like, and you were like the hardcore guy because you knew the basics of what happened. And I guess as that pertains to how Vela News' content has evolved, we've added a whole new thing, you know, a lot of feature stories and in-depth stuff and podcasts and video and stuff. But it's always kind of come back to that idea of like, the guy or the gal on the group ride who wants to be super informed and like really have an idea of to, to, to know what they think is going on. And so to deliver them analysis about the race, um, interviews about the race, and then sort of just the basic tenets of journalism, which is like find sensitive stories, like find real stories, you know, 
there's no shortage of controversy in this sport. There's no shortage of sensitivity in it. And so hone in on those, hone in on the interesting people. And then, yeah, try to find like ways to educate people about what, what the heck is going on. So that's a very long winded way of saying, of, of answering you, but yeah, I mean, we're and, and we're always looking at it, you know, we're looking at Google analytics and parsley analytics and looking at what's doing and what's resonating with people and what's grabbing onto people. I mean, we did this story the other day about Sepp Kuss and how his, his win resonated with people in Durango yeah, and you were quoted in it and people loved that story. And it was like, this was a story not about a win. Yep. This was a story about how a win emotionally impacted people in a tiny town that like, I think more people read that story than there are people in Durango. Totally. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But like yeah. people were like, Oh, that is so cool. You know, there's this momentous moment in American cycling and it had this huge impact on this small group of people. And like people were interested in that. Yeah. I had, uh, someone, um, on my way here, actually, I was getting in, uh, into the car. I just picked up a coffee and some guy on the sidewalk was just like, Hey, are you, are you pacing? I just read that Velo News article about Sepp. And he's like, hey. And he waved his wife over. He's like, this is Sepp's friend. He just won the 15th stage of the tour. And I was like, wow, that's, that's cool. That, like, I am the friend of the person that won the tour stage. And it was just cool that there was that extra little depth um, yeah. just on the street of Durango there. Some guy just visiting from out of town. After Sepp won, I think all of us dusted off our... I'm buddies with Sepp. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I, on totally. a podcast, I was like, yeah. Sepp used to hang out in our office in 2017 <laughs> and 18 because we were doing this research project with him, and he had no other place to go, and he's just like, yeah, I'll kick it. I got nothing to do. We'll yeah, hang out. Yeah. And I mean, and he, yeah, we could do a whole podcast on how rad Sepp is totally. and how good, totally. how, uh, how amazing he is for American cycling and to come yeah. about right now, and uh, just great story. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, why did you leave VeloNews? So I was there 04 to 09, which corresponded with me being 23 to 28. And, you know, I had always wanted to go write magazine journalism coming out of undergrad. And I achieved that so quickly. I kind of, you know, I had the quote unquote proverbial dream job where I'm traveling around the world, going to China and going mm. to New Zealand and doing all this stuff. And after five years of that, it was sort of like, well, there has to be more to life than this. And you know what it was? It was like, I was having these amazing experiences, all expenses paid trip to Belgium to cover the races. And I just wasn't having fun anymore. Mm. And that was like a moment where I was like, you know, any one of my buddies would like kill this, yeah. to have this experience. And I'm like, I don't appreciate it anymore. All I'm doing is whining about the traffic and like, uh, you know, and it was like, okay, that's a sign. I should probably move on and like a lot of people in their late 20s it's like I wanted to challenge myself um, I wanted experiences outside of my comfort zone and so I applied to grad school and I got in and it was in New York City and it was a total fish out of water like I've been in Colorado for most of my life or in Santa Cruz you know cool outdoor you know outdoor trails at the touch your fingertips and I'm going to go move to New York city and see what that's all about. And so that was, that was it. It was like, wanted to challenge myself and wanted to see what else was out there. Mm -hmm. What'd you go to grad school for? For journalism. Okay. Yeah. I went to Columbia and did the master's in journalism program. Yep. And it was a very intense uh, year of my life. And I went from being 
at the finish line of bike races and a couple months later being in the South Bronx <laughs> reporting on like people getting, you know, like violence and fires and yeah. like real sort of breaking news, Metro news. Mm-hmm. And I was totally freaked out, but I also loved it because yeah. it was like these, this is what I kind of needed this, you know? And as a journalist, as a, you know, you go to bike race and it's like, everyone wants to talk to you. You're like, Oh, I'm the Velo news guy. Come and talk to me. And then everyone's to, your friend. Yeah. And to go from that experience to doing mm. Metro reporting. And I did that for a while where literally no one wants to talk to you. Yeah. You are talking to everyone on potentially the worst day of their entire life. And the, the goal of you as a journalist is to try and convince that person to talk to you and to give you the information that you're after. And that is like this incredible challenge. And a lot of times it didn't work. And the only way to learn that is through trial and error. And so like trying to appeal to people who've just lost a loved one or whose apartment has just burned down or who has been the victim of, you know, um, uh, you know, this, this woman who was like this, she was the first Lutheran um, lesbian priest and mm. she'd had, you know, all this discrimination against her and mm. sort of trying to convince her to tell me her story and all this stuff. And it's like, wow, that's not just being at a bike race, scooping up quotes. <laughs> Today's episode brought to you by Inside Tracker. When you like what you do, like running, bike racing, enjoying the great outdoors, and you want to do it for life, Inside Tracker can help you. Inside Tracker uses their patented algorithm to analyze your body's data and provide you with a clear picture of what's going on inside you to offer you science to back recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. Right now, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store by going to Inside Tracker dot com forward slash Vela news that is inside tracker dot com forward slash Vela news thank you so much to inside tracker let's get back to the show getting what did getting a master's in journalism arm you with that five years of just doing it hadn't it allowed me to pivot into other topics okay and, um, and it, it did teach me some, um, good reporting techniques. It put me into the same orbit as really high, uh, achieving and high accomplishing other journalists. And it's sort of like that, you know, it's like, it's like the Durango group ride. Mm. It's like, you know what, you go out on the Durango group ride and Todd Wells is there and all of a sudden you're holding his wheel. And the next thing you, you have the belief in your mind that I could hang with Todd Wells. And it's like, you know. I don't know if I would recommend the Columbia program. Like you have to be really dedicated and seeing what journalism has done, but it's sort of like you go there and all of a sudden you're rubbing elbows with like, you know, David Remnick is coming and giving a lecture or you're talking with, you know, all these different New York times reporters and sort of just being in their orbit and like having access to them and being able to talk to them and whatever is it, it gives you sort of hope and internal confidence as a person. But then, then the other part was just like, well, there's no way I was ever going to like move to the South Bronx and all of a sudden start asking people about, you know, terrible situations they've been in. And, and that was, that was That's it. Crazy. Moving back to cycling. I'm curious what, cause sometimes when you're, when you're in it, in it, 
you lose the forest for the trees a little bit. What um, what is your opinion of this sort of splintering of the sport, and and what are what are some trends that you think might continue to pick up more momentum or or new directions you might see things going unicycling man (laughs) you know like uh like stunt unicycling (laughs) i mean i think it's i think it's great i mean as a reporter um i I, it took me a while to wrap my head around and i felt i you know i feel for the cyclists out there whose careers have ended because the american road scene has fallen apart i feel for ettinger you know i mean like like so good so good and like that old model that just dried up and withered on the vine and like so many of these men and women who were like following that and it just didn't work out i feel for these like young up-and-coming juniors who you know the pathway to get to the tour de france is so fraught and so difficult right now um but i think that the new direction is is healthy because there's something of a democratization which is that you know, you can come to a Belgian waffle ride and anyone, anyone could win, you know, and you know, you are highly accessible and you will talk to anybody and like the old European road model, which is the tour de France. And it's like, these people are on these pedestals and you can't get within 200 feet of them. And the tour de France is only for kids who have been awesome at cycling since they were 12 years old. And then they were awesome when they were 15 and awesome when they were 18 and awesome when they were 22. And now they're there. And I'm glad that that world still exists, but I just feel like in American cycling, it just is a model that it's, it's not the same. You know, you go to Europe and like cycling is NFL football. Like in Belgium, there's mainstream people who have never raced a bike before who love cycling and, you know, idolize Sven Ness. But in America, if you're a cycling fan, you ride a bike and you train and you want to go to events. And so it just, it, it needed a different model. That's exactly it. I mean, I think in Europe, it's a spectator sport and in America, it's a participation sport. Yeah. And it just took us a little while to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And it took, and it took like, um, it took different thinking. I mean, this gravel thing is a great example of it, which is like, you know, it's, it's so hard to put on a road bike race. It is impossible. Boulder, Colorado, where I live, there's so many cyclists, tons of cyclists. There's hardly any races because permitting, you know, fees, all this stuff. It's impossible to put on a road bike race, but you know what? You can put on a gravel race pretty easy. I mean, my hope is that the promoters out there are doing a good job and investing in safety and all this stuff. But like, if you wanted to, you could do like, uh, Hey guys, you know, we're going to meet here at Seven Eleven, and here's the GPX file and we're going to go rage and like, here's the route. We're going to go do it. And that, that's a, a gravel race. And so you see this confluence of like technology with GPS Strava, you know, the, the crumbling of some of these traditional road bike races and enough of those things happen. And then all of a sudden it's kind of this, this new model. So I expect to see more, um, races pop up that are done by small town, small time promoters. I think there will be a saturation point. I think there will be a point at which, um, cause something I also am worried about is, the longer, harder push in gravel, which is like, well, our race is going to be 220 miles in the desert, uphill oh, yeah. both ways. <laughs> and like, well, do you have, do you have an ambulance? Do you have safety stuff? Do you have whatever? Yeah. No, man, it's going to be donation only. And like buyer beware. And like, you know, that concerns me. I don't, 
I hear you. I mean, when the first time I did Unbound, I was so completely flabbergasted by how hard it was. Um, and it, it was scary. Like I've never felt ill, like legitimately ill the next day. Like I had a fever. Yeah. I didn't have an illness. It was just effort and heat and fatigue. And we did it in 10 hours and there were people that took twice as long. Um, that is an interesting thought. I mean, that's a really good point. It'll be interesting to see how that develops. So, you know, it's been, I've been having conversations with people out here too. And there's this thought, well, you know, road bike racing, maybe make a real comeback because of, um, SEP and because of, you know, new heroes. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. I'd love to see that happen, but I think that no matter what happens in the future of participatory cycling, it's going to be in some way tied to the NICA kids. They're getting in mm-hmm. because you have this whole new generation of kids coming in. And I think that whoever is able to really tap into what those kids want from a cycling experience, is it a race? Is it a scavenger hunt? Is it, is it a, 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 is it a color run? Is it the cycling version of a color run? Well, if that's what they want, then that's what you're going to have to give them. So I think that, you know, old 40 year old dudes like me, like we're kind of passing through the sport and, you know, our generation will not be racing bikes forever. And so whatever comes of it is going to be whoever's going to tap into what these kids want. No, I would agree. I think it's interesting right now, you know, to me, the Nike, I, I don't think it's necessarily on purpose, but Nike sort of had the, the world cup scene is still in their crosshairs. And like, that's, there's this idea that, um, Nike is going to save World Cup style racing for for North America or for for the United States, but I still feel like there's this huge chasm that has to somehow be figured out if that's going to be the case. That's just actual professional opportunities because there's only you know so many years that kids are going to be able to like coast on the coattails of their parents' support as they try to break through at the World Cup. So it'll be interesting to see how. Um, whether the sort of diversification of the sport carries down to, to Nike as well, whether Nike starts having like high school gravel races or um, whether we start seeing like Nike fairs at Belgian Waffle Ride or Unbound or that sort of thing. I think Unbound did have a high school race. Yeah. I might be making that up. They did. They yeah. did. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that, that develops too. But I agree, just sort of the, you know, the, um, almost the the little league baseball or little league soccer sort of grassroots feel of Nike really um, seems like it'll be a key. And forever, this is what American cycling had been wanting. You know, I did these stories about Belgian cycling a few years ago and it's like, there's just this robust junior scene and like there's a million kids in Belgium right now who have necks as thick as my, you know, as my thigh who are just natural born athletes who are going to find cycling and they're going to crush it and they're going to be awesome. And in Switzerland with mountain biking, it's like there's a million Swiss kids in mountain bike races right now. And the next Nino is ripping people's legs off right now. And so if you can kind of create those, if you can create those avenues for the elites to get where they're going to be, but continue to engage the kids who are like, well, I raced with Nino when we were juniors and I still have this connection and I don't race every weekend or every other weekend, but three times a summer I go to a bike race. And like, if you can find a way to grasp those people and keep them engaged in the sport, whether it's a gravel race or a mountain bike race or whatever, that's the way to do it. I mean, my, I got into cycling 
I was a swimmer at UC Santa Cruz and then started doing some triathlons. And then, you know, we had this awesome dude on our uh, road, uh, our collegiate team, Ben Jock Mains. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Ben and, Jockman, yeah. And like, um, you know, that's how I kind of got into it. I did a story on him for the, the uh, school newspaper and I was like, it was fun. <laughs> but, you know, that was still very much in the like the the Corona effect of Lance Armstrong. It was like 2002, 2001. And like Lance got all these people into the sport and for the next 15 years everything that went on in American cycling was based off of what that um, cohort of cyclists was getting into you can almost look at it's like a lifespan it's like you know the lifespan of cyclists you get into it you're so into it you're training you're seeing returns you're getting faster you want to race you want to race all the time Ooh, you just got an injury you had kids you have a job you can't race as much anymore you're not as fit as you used to be you still want to do events uh, and like you just trace this lifespan and it's like you know whoa influx of usa cycling cat four cat three cat two cat one. Oh, you know grand fondos gravel yeah. races like yeah. yeah and so I see this new in this new generation coming in through Nika and it's sort of like who is going to find a way to like follow the lifespan of these kids as cyclists and like engage them. Yeah. No, it will be really interesting to see it. It's in some ways I'm, I'm jealous of, of your job cause you get to look at these, at uh, these things at much more of a macro scale in some ways probably have a better big picture perspective on it. You know, I'm so focused on my own challenges and, and, thoughts day to day it is interesting to think about those sorts of big timelines and what's next yeah i mean it's it i i am i am lucky in that position because my job is to to talk to you and talk to colin and talk to quinn simmons and to talk to lauren stevens and to talk to michael marks and to talk to all these different people and to sort of get a sense of what's going on in their world and then to try and yeah piece synthesize together it synthesize it all and tell stories about it but <laughs> it's it's going to be messy it's going to be ugly but it's going to honestly it's going to be shaped by people like you who are going to take chances and who are going to try new things out because like the old way of doing things was just like let's keep doing the same thing only bigger and better and you know the rock racing guy is going to come in with a bunch of crazy money but it's pretty much still the same thing it's the same thing and the tour california is going to have all this investment but it's still pretty the same thing and like do you think that'll ever change like do you think a strong riders union will ever form and actually get power and the the tv revenue will actually because it just it blows my mind when, you know, when I hear what my friends are making in the world tour and I also start to get a grasp of the value of media yeah. and I know that the largest annual sporting event in the world is the Tour de France and the just complete disconnect between the value that riders are bringing and the value that TV and other advertisers are enjoying um, it's just mind boggling. Like you look at the NBA where, you know, TV revenue is split 50, 50 between the, the teams and the ownership or whatever. Like it just, I, I, it's, it just blows my mind that at the highest level world tour cycling is still clinging to this insane, unsustainable model of like barely disguised philanthropy. Really? A lot of times, you know, is that, do you think that's ever going to change? I mean, it's been what? 
60 years of it, 70 yeah. years of it. I mean, it's like, it's sort of one of those things of like, do you think the sun's going to come up tomorrow? It's like, probably, but it might not. I don't know. It's like, you know, there's part of me sometimes where I look at it, and I'm like, this is never going to change because it's entrenched in these old European systems. And it's so determined by the ASO, which they don't want to give an inch. Um, and, you know, the UCI, which they're, you know, they, I can't even get into like, that's a can of worms, a can of, worms of like, you know, and so it, it revolves around these old models of, yeah, philanthropy or, um, you know, like you see in European soccer now, which is just like buying your way to relevance and sort of, you know, oh, you're some Russian kleptocrat and you want to be a big swinging dude on the international scale, go buy a, you know, overpay for a soccer team. And so you, you're going to see that in cycling. Do I think cycling is ever going to reach some sustainable bottle where it's like, well, you know, here's the money that we get from sponsorship. And, you know, we have this, uh, you know, presentation of all the impressions that we get and the media value that we pray for sponsors. No. No, I don't. I just, you know, it hasn't been that way for so long. Um, I get a little bit skeptical when people tell me that, you know, oh, well, our world tour team actually pays for itself in marketing impressions because that relies on the value given to marketing impressions and who who knows. Um, so it's, it's a tough one. I, uh, as much as I would like to see it, I think at some point it, the riders are the, are the ones themselves that are going to have to take a big risk. But the, in that sort of structure, like they can't afford to take a risk because as soon as you do something differently in that realm, you get a slap on the wrist. Yep. And there's a million strong cyclists in Belgium and Spain right now who are waiting to take their... Yeah, next in line. Waiting to take their spot. Totally. Oh, you, you know... You're not going to hire like so-and-so Eshaburia. Well, here's another Eshaburia and he's even better than he'll work for half the price. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I heard. Yeah. That's a different story. I, I just, I heard about a signing, um, that sort of surprised me last year and the, I'm, I'm friends with one of the managers and they were like, well, he was out of a team. So we got him for half the price. Yay. It's, it's just like, congrats. Yeah. Great party. <laughs> I know. I mean, and, and, you know, in talking with, um, Stetna and some of the other, you know, world tour road guys who either retired or are, you know, on the gravel program now, it's like the amount of stress that they'd be under at the end of a season when it's contract time. And like, you know, you're waiting to hear from your team manager and, you know, maybe you didn't have the best year and like wins are so hard to come by. Uh, the world tour level as they are. And it's just like, I can't imagine that, that level of job instability. And there's a million kids who are strong in these countries who will do it for half the price. And, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that it's like, okay, we've, I found a new way to do it. And it's based off of, you know, I have to, I have to spend 12 hours a day in front of my computer. Fine. Like I don't have to worry about if I'm going to be able to pay my mortgage because it's September and like, I'm not getting texts back. And you have a diversified portfolio of value. I mean, it's not your, your, your single, you don't have one silo of results. That is your value. Um, and you know, it, we're getting to that time of year where, uh, you know, contracts are getting renegotiated and my agent and I are working on a, a renewal that could be in terms of, um, term of contract, like the number of years involved, just 
in like un, kind of unheard of from what I understand just in terms of length of contract because the brand has trust that even if I was out for six months with a broken femur, I'm still going to be able to deliver a product that has a significant amount of value. And so they're willing to commit for way more years, way more years. And that's so weird in a way because very rarely do you hear that um, from riders who are much higher profile than I am, but in those other models. Job instability has been the name of the game yeah. in pro cycling since I have started since I started covering it in 2004. Whether it was pro mountain bike racing, world tour road cycling, domestic road cycling, it was just like the end of the season's approaching. It's September, October, and you see the guys and gals who didn't have that one result or those five results, yeah. and it's just like it's worry time. So crazy, yeah. It is interesting. There's one thing I wanted to. One more thing. I'm, oh. Um, in regards to, this is sort of a funny segue, job security, but uh, Velanus has undergone some reacquisition or acquisitions, changing of hands several times in the last 10 years. I is mean, that, in the last like five years, five years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Being, being in your shoes, um, what, how do I, I, I'm so, I have so little experience with that world that I don't even really know how to frame the question, but um how challenging is is that? Is it uh, how much time is spent adjusting to the new structure versus like getting to do the job you want to do? Yeah, I mean, each acquisition sort of has its own um, nuances and quirks to it. So yeah, I mean, I started in 2016. We were owned by Competitor Group. Competitor Group was purchased by Iron Man that year. Then in 2017, the media brands at competitor at, at Iron Man were rolled up and sold to a group called Pocket Outdoor Media. Um, that lasted a year. There was reinvestment, and then um, we had a new investor come on board who um, has renamed the company Outside after we acquired Outside. We recently acquired Pink Bike. So that's how it went. Outside yep. was acquired. Yeah. But the branding was strong enough that they wanted to basically roll it all under outside. We started as Pocket Outdoor Media, within we acquired Active Interest Media, okay. which is like Yoga Journal mm -hmm. and um, you know a bunch of different titles. We acquired Big Stone Publishing, which was Rock and Ice, mm -hmm. and you know now as you look at the outside portfolio across um, endurance, across healthy living across running outdoors you know there's all these different media brands there's gps brands there's um there's just a lot under it like i can't i look at the full lineup and it it seems to grow all the time and so back to your original question which was you know how has that been i mean yeah it's been it's been it's been there have been times that have been that it has been very stressful i will say in the last year and a half it has been a very positive story because it's been a story of vision and investment and new thinking and like looking at media and outdoor media and cycling media and being like, hey, you know, kind of what we've been talking about this entire conversation. For the last 30 years, it's been this way and everyone banging their heads against the wall. And you know what, if we keep banging our heads against the wall, it's probably just gonna get smaller and smaller and smaller. What if we rethink this? And so being involved in that and being a part of that has been very exciting. Has it been like, oh, just, you know, smooth sailing every single day, tra-la-la? No, I mean, it's frustrating, it's messy, it's like innovative, you know, trying new things out is scary, it's terrifying. Um, 
and and some of the things you try to fail. Mm-hmm. But I'd say, and especially in the last year and a half, it has been a it has been more often than not a very positive story. Um, what do you think the the future of media looks like in terms of just platform? Do you think? Uh, I guess I'd put it this way. Um, in terms of, uh, I don't know if that's too touchy a question. In in terms of your uh, the folks that read Velo News, consume Velo News, whatever it is, um, has there been a shift in terms of their preferences? Mm-hmm. Do people still read long form articles all the way through, or is it going to continue to be more like passively passively consumable things like video and social media and all that sort of thing? Like what? Honestly, what going? the the cool position we're in right now is we get to try a lot of that stuff out, mm-hmm. and whatever works. We're going to do more of that. And if it doesn't work, maybe we'll try it a different way. And if that doesn't work, then that, then we will probably won't do it. So to a certain degree, it's very much up to the consumer. Um, you know, yeah. Is, are we going to, you know, bring back the newspaper and come back, you know, Vela News every single two weeks I'm in, still a, subscribed. in a print copy? I get it in the mail. I do. You know, probably <laughs> not. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, the old school guy in me, is wants everyone to read the story and not the tweet and wants to read every word of my 3,500 word profile deep dive into topic X. But I know that's not the case. Will we continue to do those stories? Absolutely, for sure. Because feature stories and reporting and journalism, like that's so valuable. But yeah, I think that, um, you know, even in the last year and a half, it's like, wow, most people read this stuff on their phones. Now, when I was cutting out of grad school in 2009, there was this belief that no one is going to read more. No one's going to read anything on their phones. We need the tablet. The tablet is going to save journalism. Everyone's going to have iPads, you know, five years from now. Like, it's going to be this army of iPad-wheeling people, like, reading the New York Times on their iPad every day. And it's like, that was really dumb. And, like, as it turns out, I don't know about you, I, I've read 5,000-word stories on my phone. I mean, it's not the best thing in the world to do, but like we do it. And so it's going to be very dependent on, on the people. But I think the position we're in is we're going to be able to try a lot of new stuff out to see what that is. Well, Payson, you know, we've been going for an hour here. We could probably go for another hour, two more hours. Um, sure. And, and you know what? Maybe we should uh, on, a, on a later podcast. Um, I really enjoyed talking yeah, with you about this stuff. And I'm glad that we circled and circled and circled and circled. And finally came together on I'm, this one. I'm glad you're here at the Belgium Wall Thread. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, the mainstream cycling media is, is uh, paying attention to this weird little corner we've carved out um, that's not so weird and not so small anymore. Um, but yeah, it's great. I look forward to reading your coverage of the weekend. All right. <laughs> thanks for the pod. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad.